Philippians 3, 12 through 16. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church at Philippi and he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we continue our study in the book of Philippians, which is an epistle of joy. That's the main theme of this book. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison in Rome, and he wrote it to a church he loved, a church he helped start some years later at Philippi. And so we learned two sermons ago that the way we're accepted with God isn't based on our righteousness or our accomplishments through the law by completing certain things or meeting certain criteria, but rather we are accepted with God based on the righteousness of Christ himself. It's what he accomplished in our behalf, in our place, that makes us right with God, that reconciles us with God. Then last week we saw that this faith in Jesus, which connects us through his righteousness to God, this faith is not a means to get something, but actually is the goal, that Christ himself, knowing him, being in a relationship with him, is the goal. And so in our text today, Paul continues to teach about our life with Christ, this life of knowing Christ, which he, in this particular passage, likens to a race, like one that he would have seen at public games in a number of cities in the ancient world. This was a common uh, common means of entertainment for people to gather and watch athletes compete in various sporting events and foot race was one of them. People ran. That was a big deal in the ancient world. So my plan today is, is to focus on this metaphor. So I'll make an introduction that I'll focus on the metaphor of the race, which Paul uses in our passage. And then I'll tell you about three dangers to our running the race. And then finally, in conclusion, I'll point to our motivation. Is it a five-point sermon Or is it a three-point sermon? Nobody knows. But three are alliterated, and they are posted on Facebook, so I have to stay true to that. Now, let's talk about the metaphor as a way of introduction. The whole passage hinges on this one metaphor, and that is the metaphor of the race. Paul is using the language that would have been very much familiar to people in his world. He's talking about pressing on, which is to pursue, to to chase, to run towards the goal. When he says the goal, he means the finish line. That's how people would have understood what he's saying here. When he says the prize, he's talking about the wreath or a a crown or garland that is bestowed on the winner after the race is won. When he talks about the upward call, of course, there's a Christian meaning that is the heavenly upward call towards God in, in eternity. 
And yet, in the sports language of the day, this would have meant that we were called to win the race and come up, come up onto the podium to receive the prize. So the, the upward call is the call to the podium to be acknowledged as the winner. So all of this is about the race. It's about running. Paul's understanding of the Christian life is clearly and clear from other passages is one of strenuous race. Clearly for Paul and in Scripture in general, Christians are to pursue Christ in their lives with the view of the future fulfillment of their salvation. There's a clear future element to our faith. We're running towards a goal. We're running towards the completion of God's work. And yes, our salvation is secure. Christ has accomplished it. And we can talk about Christ's words on the cross. It is finished as finalizing our salvation. Yes, our fate is secure. And yet, there's a future fulfillment of what Christ has done. We are assured of our victory, but we are still in the race. We're still running. We're still looking forward to what God has yet to do. A.W. Tozer wrote a great book in 1948. I'm reaching back a little bit here. And it's called The Pursuit of God. Many of you have probably read it. In the first chapter entitled Following Hard After God. This is how he starts the book on pursuing God, following hard after God. Tozer observes how many believers in his time lived superficial spiritual lives and simply relied on teachers and programs of the church, but not pursuing God themselves. Tozer points out that many believers have been taught to just accept Christ at conversion, and feel no need to pursue him any longer. This is what Tozer says. We have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic, which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. Let me read this again. We have been snared in the, in the coils of a spurious logic, which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. He goes on to say, this is said before us as the last word of orthodoxy. And it is taken for granted that no Bible-taught Christian ever believed otherwise. Thus the whole testimony of the worshiping, seeking, singing church on the subject is crisply set aside. The, the experiential heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of Scripture, which would certainly have sounded strange to an Augustine, a Rutherford, or a Brainerd. What Tozer is describing sounds all too familiar today. Not much has changed since the 40s of Tozer's time. We live in an age of weak spiritual ambition. Instead of raising the standard, we accommodate the complacent. Church discipline is not practiced widely for fear of appearing to be judgmental. Sin is excused 
and left unaddressed because after all, who doesn't struggle among us? Spiritual disciplines are neglected and our neglect is rationalized by the twisting of the doctrine of grace, one of the most precious doctrines. Sermons on holiness are often replaced by self-esteem boosters. Clear biblical commands are considered optional. Normal patterns of the Christian life are lauded as great sacrifices. Discipleship is reduced to going through a study. The narrow way of the gospel has been widened. And Jesus' call to lose your life, to take up your cross, to give up everything for him sounds unreasonable and jarring. Now, of course, I'm generalizing, of course. God never leaves his church without a faithful remnant who follows hard after God and praise God that he never lets us go all the way to where we want to go in our sin. But I think it's pretty evident that today's church in the West lacks spiritual ambition. We are in need of more serious men and women. We are in need of more early risers, fasters, mystics, and monastics, evangelists, apostles, prophets, reformers, and martyrs. And the goal of this sermon this morning is to remind us to run the race. It is to make us focus on the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My brothers and my sisters, are you following hard after God? Have you submitted your whole life to the goal of knowing Christ? Are you running the race? Now, before I get into the dangers of the race, those factors that distract us from doing what I'm describing, I want to give you one passage of Scripture that I think gives us a great illustration of what it's like to not lack ambition and to continue to pursue Christ with our whole lives. It's found in Joshua 14. In Joshua 14, that's the passage where they're dividing the land. Israel came from Egypt. They were redeemed by God. They wandered in the wilderness and finally... God brought them into the land of promise under Joshua, and they are now dividing the land among different tribes and clans. And there's a lot to be done still. There are still people that need to be defeated. There are still portions of the land that need to be conquered, but they're there, and they're taking hold of the land. And this is what Caleb says to Joshua. I remember Caleb was one of the original spies that went into and saw the land and Ten of the spies were very afraid and didn't want to go into the land, but two of them, Joshua and Caleb, trusted in God and ready to go in. Now, this is now 40 years later, and this is what Caleb says to Joshua. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said. These 45 years since the time 
that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was on the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is that my strength is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Listen to this. This 85-year-old Caleb says, So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. This is an incredible passage. An 85-year-old man who feels that he's just as strong as he ever was. I don't think he, will, he is as strong as he thinks he is, but, but the ambition, the desire in his heart, he's been thinking about God's promise for 45 years. And he says, I remember what the Lord said. And he says to Joshua, give me the hill country because maybe the Lord will help me conquer that and defeat the Anakim and take the fortified cities. I mean, it's amazing that this is coming when they are in the land. He could relax at this point, right? He could say, let the younger people now take care of this. And he says, give me the hill country, not the easiest piece of land. But he says, give it to me. There's godly ambition. I love this passage. Oh, I pray that at 85, if I'm still around, I would be able to say this. And for some of you, maybe this is a word for those who are retiring or have retired. Maybe you are in your older years. Look at Caleb. He's not retired from his pursuit of God, for his pleading God's promises, give me the hill country. I pray that this would be my slogan, this would be your slogan in life, where you go to God and you say, you give me the hill country. I still, I, I am as strong as I ever was. I can still do it. Give me the next task. Give me what you have promised. But whatever age you are, you don't have to be old to apply this to your life. Maybe it's better if you're younger to apply it now and not wait till, you, till it's later. So let me address the young people, the kids and the teenagers and the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings and my generation. We need to hear this. We ought to be going to God on our knees and saying, give us the hill country. That, that spirit of holy dissatisfaction of saying, Lord, there are promises that are still to be fulfilled in my life. And I'm not letting go of you, like Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Not letting go until you bless me. Where is that godly ambition? Where is that passion of saying, I'm not letting go. I'm taking hold of God. And I'm not letting go until all his promises are fulfilled. Those are different metaphors for the same thing. Paul's metaphor is the race. I will keep running. I'm not slowing down because I'm older. I'm going to keep running. The finish line is still ahead. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to plead the promises. And I'm going to take what God has promised to me. So what is your hill country? 
What is it that you're pleading with God and holding on to God for? Regardless of your age, do you have this Caleb-like ambition? This is what today's sermon is about. Now let's get into the specific of the text. Specifics of the text. I have three dangers that Paul lays, us, lays it out for us here to our running the race successfully. The first one is the pretense of perfection. The pretense of perfection. Look at verse 12. Our passage begins with Paul saying, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, in context, Paul is talking about the resurrection from the dead. That's the previous verse. He's saying, I want to attain to the resurrection from the dead. But then he says, not that I've already obtained it, or I'm already perfect. Meaning that because the resurrection hasn't happened yet, I'm not yet perfect. I've not achieved the resurrection. My run, my race isn't done yet, so I'm not yet perfect. There's still work to do in me, in you, in the ministry, in life, until we meet the Lord in glory, we are to press on, to keep running, to keep our focus on the upward call of God in Christ. And then Paul reiterates it in verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Even the great apostle cannot claim that he has arrived. He's still struggling. He's still pressing on. He's still running. Though he is in prison, though he might die, he's still pressing on, still running. He's saying, all of us need to be doing this. All of us need to run. All of us need to pursue God and follow hard after him. A story is told about a desert father. Those were the early monks in the 4th and 5th centuries in Egypt who left the city, were disillusioned with the nominal Christianity of the day and the lack of spiritual ambition. And so they said, we're just going to go in the wilderness, we're going to pray, we're going to learn the scriptures, we're going to battle demons. Those are the kind of men and women they were. So one of these desert fathers, known at the end of his life for his piety, his prayer life, his spiritual commitment, and even his miracles, he's dying, he's on his deathbed, surrounded by his followers, his face becomes bright, and he's talking to somebody, but not anybody in the room. And so one of his followers says, what are you, who are you talking to? He's saying, I'm talking to the angels that came to take me to heaven. And his follower says, well, what are you saying? What are they saying? He's saying, I'm pleading with them to give me more time to repent. And the follower says, Father, you don't need to repent. And the desert father says, I feel like I have not even begun to repent. Why is it that so many of us live as if we are done repenting, done growing, done serving, done sacrificing, done pursuing God? The apostle argues against the pretense of perfection. Now, of course, in some theological circles, people actually believe that it is possible to reach sinless state here. There are theologians who believe that and teach on that. But we don't hear this much anymore. It exists, but it's not really in our circles, to be fair. It's a theological fallacy. 
It's pretty easy to disprove, I think. Here's a story about Charles Spurgeon who did not believe in earthly perfection. He was once talking to one of the students in his college for pastors, and the student said, you know, um, Pastor Spurgeon, I, I have not sinned for five weeks. I think I'm getting close to the sinless perfection in this life. Spurgeon, who was a, a rotund man, he was a stout man, stomped on his foot. The student quickly lose, lost his temper, and Spurgeon said, well, that should take care of the perfection nonsense. Easy to disprove, as I said. And I don't think there's anybody here that would say, I believe that if I work really hard, I will be perfect before the Lord returns. But I wonder how many of us live as if we believe that it's possible or that that may even be a reality in our lives today. How many of us live as if perfection exists? I'll call it practical perfectionism. Not theological, but practically we act as if perfection is attainable. Might you be a practical perfectionist? Might this be what keeps you from running the race hard? Now let me explain how it works. If you cannot remember the last time you have repented of sin, practically you act as if you have achieved perfection. Because you're not repenting anymore. You're not confessing your sin anymore. If in the midst of a conflict with someone, you do not think that you had anything in a way of contributing to that conflict, you are practically a perfectionist. You just think it can't be that I have contributed to this. If you are surprised at the failures of others, you might be expecting them to be perfect. If you expect that your church does everything right, friends, you need to repent of practical perfectionism. Do you see where I'm going with this? That even though we don't believe in the doctrine of perfection, we often live as if that's real. I don't sin. Why are you sinning? Why is this happening? Frustrated with sin, as if it's something unusual and new and disruptive to our holy lives. Biblically, we're all dealing with sin. We're all struggling. None of us has arrived. And so we have to live realistically and not give in to the pretense of perfection. Now look at verse 15. Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, that if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What does he mean by that? He means that the true sign of Christian maturity is recognizing our immaturity. That's how you know you're really mature, is that you constantly think about your immaturity. The more we grow in Christ, the more we learn, the more we progress spiritually, the more we realize how much more work needs to be done. The more you know Christ, the more you realize how much more there is to know. Of course, that's how it works. And so to say I am mature is, is, is at the same time to say I am immature. That's what Paul is saying. Don't pretend to be perfect. Don't live your Christian life as if you have already arrived in glory. Don't lose sight of the finish line thinking the race is over. And don't expect others to be perfect around you. We're all running the race. 
and we're doing it together. No one here has arrived yet. And yet many Christians have stopped running because somehow they have convinced themselves that they have arrived. Maybe not theologically, but practically. We can't be indifferent to the upward call of God in Christ. There is a future element to our salvation, and it's critical. Not everything has been fulfilled yet. We haven't arrived yet. We're not perfect yet. It's coming, but we're not there yet. While our salvation is secure, it has not been completed yet. We're waiting for the last stage of God's redemptive work to be finished. And this is why Paul is talking about the prize, the goal, the upward call. There's something that is in the future, something that is up ahead. We can't lose this future aspect of our Christianity. Listen to Gordon Fee, who's a commentator Josh and I have been using for, for this series. He says, The singular and passionate focus on the future consummation, which Paul clearly intends as parad... Oh, I used to... Hold on, let me say this word. Paradigmatic. Is that right? Paradigmatic? We'll leave it at that. I actually practiced it. I'm not enough. Which Paul clearly intends as paradigmatic often gets lost in the church for a whole variety of reasons. In a scientific age, it is something of an embarrassment to many. In a world come of age, only the oppressed think eschatologically for reasons of weakness, we are told. In an affluent age, who needs it? But Paul's voice should not be muffled so quickly and easily. For a race who by their very nature are oriented to the future, but who have no real future to look forward to, here is a strikingly and powerfully Christian moment. The tragedy that attends the rather thoroughgoing loss of hope in contemporary Western culture is that we are now trying to make the present eternal. Hence, North Americans in particular are the most death-denying culture in the history of the race. In the midst of such a banal hopelessness, the believer in Christ, who recognizes Christ as the beginning and end of all things meaningful, needs to be reminded again, and to think in terms of sharing it with the world, that God's purposes for His creation are not finished until He has brought our salvation to its consummation. Indeed, to deny the consummation is to deny what is essential to any meaningful Christian faith. Paul finds life meaningful precisely because he sees the future with great clarity. And the future has to do with beginnings, the realization of God's creative purposes through Christ the Lord. There's no other prize. Hence, nothing else counts for much except knowing Christ, both now and and with clear and certain hope for the future. Do you believe as a Christian that there's a future aspect of our salvation, that we are to live in hope, that we are to live leaning forward, running forward, running to the finish line? If you believe that, you need to give up on your pretense of perfection. For one day, you will know Christ fully, and all His purposes will be accomplished. But now, we are to keep our eyes on the finish line, on the prize, and keep running. That's the first problem. The first danger is the 
pretense of perfection. The second one is the pull of the past. The pull of the past. In verse 13, Paul says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Many Christians are not running because they are stuck in the past. They're not straining forward to what lies ahead because they are too attached to what lies behind. Now, in the running metaphor, they slow down because they look back. Now, I'm not a runner. I'm an aspirational runner in my life. I've always wanted to be a runner until I got to the age I am now and realizing that running hurts me and destroys my body. I'm into brisk walks now. So I'm joining all of you who are brisk walking now, who used to be runners. But some of you are runners, and you know what this means. By looking back in a race, you slow down. You lose your advantage. The classic illustration of this is the race that I've heard and read about, and it's been quoted in sermons because it's such a great illustration. And maybe some of you remember it and will tell me about it. This is the classic illustration of what it means to look back and lose the race. There was this great race between Roger Bannister and John Landing at the Empire, British Empire Games in Vancouver in 1954. Both of these men, Bannister and Landy, had just broken the four-minute mile earlier that summer, which was a big deal at that point. The race was a highly publicized event. It was dubbed by the press as the Miracle Mile or Mile of the Century. Landy was a fast solo runner. Bannister was a racer. Landy's strategy was to draw Bannister into a very fast pace early on and to drain him of any finishing kick. Bannister's strategy was, on the other hand, was to run as evenly as possible and keep his finishing kick to the last straight. As the runners approached the final lap, Bannister was forced to keep up with the fast-paced landing and had a very difficult time reserving any energy for the final straight. Landy was ahead and thought he had broken Bannister. And then Landy couldn't help but look back to see just how far ahead he was. As Landy looked over his left shoulder, at the same, at the very same moment, Bannister flung himself past Landy on the right. And while Bannister was slowing down, he had almost nothing left at this point, he had broken Landy and only needed to hold on now. Final times, Bannister, 3.58.8, Landy, 3.59.6. Landy lost by just 0.8 second. Christians, sometimes, are given to unhealthy retrospection. Some of our past accomplishments can produce complacency in the present. Some of our past failures can paralyze us now. We need to be careful not to look back at the wrong time and not to get distracted what's coming up behind us, what we left behind, but we are to, to strain forward 
to keep moving forward, to keep the momentum, and to not lose the advantage. You remember the movie Napoleon Dynamite? I'm trying to hit all the generations today, so I don't know which generation it is, probably mine. In the movie, the character of Uncle Rico, one of the funniest characters, I think, always talked about, about his high school football career. Just could never get over the fact that he was so good at football when he was in high school. And he would say, back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Coach would have put me in in fourth quarter, quarter. We would have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. That's all he talked about. His mind was on the past. And so he didn't live in the present. He couldn't do anything in the present because all he could think about is what happened, what could have happened, what would have happened in the past. And so for many of us Christians, our past failures and our past accomplishments hold us back from running the race now. Do you struggle with that? Because you have failed in the past, you're not even going to try it again now. I've seen people like that. I've struggled with that myself, certainly. You start a spiritual exercise like Lent, for example. You're, you're starting a fast, and then your second day you fail, and then you're like, well, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> or you think about something in your past that is still, still has a hold over you, something you had done and there's guilt still in your heart. So many Christians live under the guilt of their past sins. Well, there's no condemnation, God says, to those, for those who are in Christ. Do you believe that? If you believe that, if you believe that the gospel actually affects your past and it removes that guilt, that shouldn't hold you back from pursuing God now. Corey ten Boom said, God buries our sins in the depths of the sea and then puts up a sign that reads, no fishing. And yet many of us fish in the past. Many of us go back in that unhealthy retrospection and go over what we've done and get stuck in it and that guilt keeps us passive now. Or perhaps your accomplishment of the past says, well, I already did that. I don't have to push myself hard now. I already did that. that was in my younger days. And yet Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, pushing forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Living in the past, constantly replaying our past accomplishments or failures can easily prevent us from living a full life in Christ now. Looking back slows us down. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press on. Now, the final factor that can distract us and hinder us from running the race successfully is the problem of passivity. I'll be brief about this. The past is not irrelevant. I just told you to forget what's in the past, right? And you need to do that so it doesn't hold you back. And yet, there are things in our past that we need to build on, that we can't let go, we can't let it slip away. While we need to avoid unhealthy retrospection, we are to be careful to build on our past achievements. Verse 16. Only let us hold true to what, to what we have attained. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul says we got to preserve our lead. we got to keep running. Hebrews 2 warns us about this. 
Therefore, this is verse 1 of Hebrews 2, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Passivity in the Christian life means regression. You don't stay where you are when you're passive. You keep going back to where you used to be. To go backward in our walk with Christ, you don't have to do anything. You'll just drift downstream. Paul says, hold on to what you have already achieved or what you've already attained. Do not let it slip away through your neglect. Do not forget what you have already learned. Do not give up on what has already been put into practice. Most Christians who leave the faith, they don't leave the faith after a turbulent time of struggle with a theological issue, and then they declare that I am now apostatizing from the faith. It's rare. It happens, but it's rare. Most of the people who leave the faith simply drift away through the neglect, through the inability to hold on to what they had. And eventually it slips away and it's gone. Faith that isn't nurtured is a weak faith that gets weaker and weaker. I want you to hear me because this is a real problem in the church today. People who profess to be believers that neglect their faith and eventually drift away altogether. If you are in that category, wake up. Wake up and realize that you're, being, you're drifting downstream towards the open sea, and passivity is death in the Christian life. It's not an option to be a passive Christian. You can't be a Christian when you're passive. You will eventually drift away. And if you neglect Jesus in your life right now, there's no assurance that you will return to him. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. Take these warnings seriously. Don't neglect your spiritual walk. Continue to run. Continue to see the finish line ahead of you and continue to put effort towards it. You need to start rowing. When I think about the Christian life, it's, you know, Paul talks about the race. I wonder if he was around during our times, if he would liken the Christian life to an escalator and running the opposite way on the escalator in the mall or in the airport. I used to do that as a kid all the time. We lived with an extensive subway system, and almost every subway station had a, one of those escalators. And almost every time, you know, the kids would run up the escalator that's going down just to see, can I run fast enough, right, to get to the top before it drags me down? Friends, this is the Christian life. If you stop running, it simply takes you back. You got to keep running to get to the top. You got to keep running to get to the prize. I've spent time with Christians, and certainly have seen that in my life, where you work on establishing a pattern, establishing a habit of, let's say, daily Bible reading and prayer, right? And usually we know it takes about three, four weeks to really get a habit down. And so you work with somebody, you disciple somebody, and you work with them to establish that first it's a couple times a week, then you go towards maybe every weekday, and then it's daily, and then you feel like you get to that point where it becomes normal and habitual. It's just happening now. Every morning they, get, they wake up and they think to get their Bible, and they start praying. It just becomes second nature. 
And then months later, I talked to the same person and I asked them, how are you doing with regular Bible study and prayer? And they say, yeah, I kind of fell out of it. I don't have that habit anymore. How does that happen? It happens when we simply drift. It's not a decision that they made. It just happened over time because they've neglected it, because they weren't running hard. Beware of the problem of passivity. And let me close this sermon by talking about our motivation briefly. I've said all that I've said because these are the things that need to be said and they are biblical. There is no question that the Bible calls us to exert effort. The Bible calls us to be serious about our disciplines. The Bible calls us to run strenuously and run hard after God. Go after God with all your being. That is a biblical teaching. But it is also true that our motivation is not in our own ambition. We are to press on. We are to take it seriously. We are to keep striving towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. But we need another motivation than just actually doing it. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I press on to make it my own, to reach that goal, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on to make it my own because, why? Because Jesus has made me his own. I keep pursuing the prize because Jesus has pursued me. I keep running the race because Jesus ran and won the race. I keep, I keep taking hold of Christ because Jesus has taken hold of me. Matthew Henry says, it's not our laying hold of Christ first, but his laying hold of us, which is our happiness and salvation. Not our keeping hold of Christ, but His keeping hold of us is our safety. Friends, it's grace that empowers us to run. It is what Jesus has done for us and His commitment to complete His work in us that should motivate us. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But how can we do that? By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are not perfect, but Jesus is perfect. We need saving. And Jesus came to save us. He died a shameful, painful death for us, but thought it was worth it. We can endure because He endured. He won the race for us, so we run the race for Him. What is the joy that was set before Him that made Him despise the shame and endure the cross? 
At least in part, we are his joy. At least in part, what, what he had in mind was getting us, was seeing us on that podium, was seeing us complete our race. He is the shepherd that rejoices that he found his lost sheep. He rejoices that he found us, that he saved us. He's waiting to welcome us at the podium and to put the crown of his own righteousness on our head and to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is our motivation. And if you're a Christian, that is enough to run hard and to finish the race and to plead with God for the hill country and to not give up and not to look back and not to get distracted by your, fast, by your past, but to continue to pursue him, not lose the momentum, but finish the race well because he will hold us fast. If you're not a believer, I ask you to think about what Jesus has done for you. If you were listening to the sermon and you're not a Christian, I hope that at least you heard what the Christian life is about. But to enter into that life, to live that life, to finish that life as a Christian, Jesus needs to make you his own. So would you turn to him in faith today? Let me pray for you and let me pray for us as we struggle towards the finish line. Father, we thank you that you call us to run the race. But we thank you more that you gave us the motivation and the power to run it well. That it is your grace in Christ that makes the upward call attainable. Not because we are fast runners, not because we endure, but because Jesus ran, Jesus endured, Jesus completed and now all his promises, including the future consummation of salvation, will come true. I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak these truths into our hearts. And as believers, let us recommit to run. And for those of us who don't know Jesus, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would take hold of us today and unite us with Jesus by faith so we can start the race today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.